Matthew 13, a couple different texts. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in the search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is God's word. Amen. Well, if you have a seat, we are uh, welcome for those who are new. We go straight through books of the Bible and we're in Matthew. We'll be in Matthew for... Uh, two more weeks, I believe. One more week? Two more weeks? One more week. Um, we've divided into four books, basically, and so we'll take a break um, for about five weeks. We'll do a series called Grace that's deeply theological, and it's going to both bless you and scare you to death. And then we'll return to Matthew um, at the end of November. So we'll take a little bit of a breather, um, and we'll get to hear um, some good stuff. So we're in uh, Matthew, we've been going through chapter 13 and quite a few parables, so I want to start with a really basic question that uh, I probably need some explanation for, and that is this, what if, I'm just going to call it our Snohomish Christianity, so that could be Northwest Christianity, that could be Seattle-ish Christianity, whatever you'd like to call it, like Stevens Christianity, what if our Snohomish Christianity is not Biblical Christianity? Yeah, that's a big uh-oh. Even if you self-identify as a Christian, if you are here and you call yourself a Christian, what if the Bible identifies you in the way you think and the way you act, even maybe the way you feel as a non-Christian? Would that disturb you a bit? Is there a difference as we look at culture and we See guys praying after making touchdowns or praying as they give newscasts about difficult things that happen. Is there a difference between what we see as Christianity and what we read as biblical Christianity? And I think there is. Jesus' disciples, if you kind of get into their mindset of of what they're experiencing, um, they grew up believing that the Pharisees, right, the Bible guys, the religious guys, the, the religious leaders, they grew up believing that the Pharisees were the children of God. Leaving them a bit confused when Jesus starts to call them the children of the devil. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The Pharisees? And Jesus says things like, yeah, you, you've got to be better than those guys. 
See, in chapter 13, after a full chapter, that being 12, of opposition, which again was probably confusing for the disciples, in chapter 13, Jesus teaches these series of parables to explain, this is what He's doing, He's trying to explain why there is this growing division between His disciples and these guys who were the religious dudes. He's trying to explain why that is for His disciples and for the Pharisees themselves. One of Jesus' primary purposes in teaching these parables is to challenge what is the religious leader's understanding of how God and His kingdom work and their membership in it. At the heart of every one of of his stories that Jesus is telling is this idea. God and His kingdom are not like you thought. Which goes back to our question, what if our Snohomish Christianity isn't really biblical Christianity? Have we ever even stopped to think about that? Well, what are the marks of, of kingdom citizenship? Like, how do you know you're in the kingdom? Because the Jews, right, these guys had pedigree, they had knowledge, they had morality, they even had rituals. But they weren't part of God's kingdom, Jesus said. In truth, the Jews, and not all of them, obviously, the disciples were Jewish. But the religious leaders, at least, had a false conception of what it meant to be in the kingdom. Just as I think many have a false conception of what it means to be a Christian. For those who are not Christians, as you interact with those who would not claim to believe or follow Christ, if you ever ask them what they think a Christian is, my guess is you'd get some pretty colorfully interesting answers. And I would actually argue that if you asked many Christians, which I didn't put that test question in your bulletin today, of just what is a Christian, you know, the kids downstairs in the 9-11 class, I write a curriculum for them based off of this, they're being asked that question, what is a Christian? I think you get some colorful answers again. A Christian someone who does good. A Christian someone who goes to church. A Christian someone who gathers every now and then and does things together, right? The Jews have a very false conception of the kingdom. See, they thought the kingdom of God was something that, that they actually achieved, that they ushered in by their good works. That the king would show up and just go, thanks guys for setting this up. You are going to be the leaders of my kingdom because you are so righteously awesome and better than everybody else. They thought the king would come and give them political freedom. They thought the king would come and give them physical healing immediately. They thought the king would, would come and give them material prosperity. That's what they expected. Jesus came and He revealed that the kingdom now versus the kingdom then that we talked about next last week. The kingdom now is something largely spiritual. That the kingdom now is... is Essentially, the kingdom of God is something within you. And that something within you, that, that kingdom of God in you, that power is what governs and rules your heart and your mind and your perceptions and your actions. That's what we're talking about. 
And as Jesus describes how or what the kingdom is like, right? All four of these parables, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. He is not laying out you know, instructions on how to live so that you can get into the kingdom. What he is in fact doing is revealing how citizens of the kingdom live. Or better said, how biblical Christians live. How they perceive things. By grace. See, I believe the kingdom of God produces something in us. And we are reminded of that when you meet someone who just became a Christian. Do you remember that? Some of you may have not been Christians very long. I think a lot of you have been Christians for a long time. And when you see someone where the kingdom comes to rule in their heart, where they have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, you're like, whoa, what happened? Something's been created in you. And it doesn't take too long, I think, for us to forget that. Similar to how the Israelites forgot what Egypt was really like, right? Took them about like two days, and we're like, let's go back. And they'd forgotten all that God had done. So these four parables reveal the true nature, I think, of the change that explains what the disciples are seeing, but also gives them clarity about what's happening in their own hearts. See, Jesus doesn't save us in order to just brand us. Okay? Responding to Jesus' call, which I'm going to assume a lot of you have responded or would at least say that you've responded. I would. I follow Jesus. Well, we need to understand this. And since I'm not saying any names, if your heart gets pierced at me saying this, that's the Spirit talking to you, not me. But know this, that Jesus' call to follow me, of which many of us claim, is more than what I'll describe as an apathetic identification as a Christian or an occasional good deed every now and then. That's Snohomish Christianity. Right? That's Northwest That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is an entirely new life. It is, it is a life in a new kingdom with a new mind and a new purpose and a new joy and a new will. Everything has changed. This is what Christianity is. God doing something in us, producing something in us so that we can fulfill everything He has for us. That's what it is. It's the kingdom doing something inside of us that we couldn't restrain if we wanted to. That's biblical Christianity. And this is what Jesus is going to describe. The kingdom of God gives us four things, at least here, that Jesus talks about. A new perspective, a new love, a new joy, and a new will. So the first parable, He says this, Put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. When it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I've never read a parable more disagreed about its interpretation than this one. I had 
multiple books that I was studying. One commentary is like, this is all about the work of Satan and how he does this, and this is about the work of God and how he does this. And like, how do you even like bridge those two? I'll try. See, the Pharisees have all kinds of issues with Jesus' description of the kingdom of God. They expected, as I've said, a king big enough and an army strong enough to throw off the Roman Empire and to establish a new kingdom. They expected power. They expected wealth. They expected charisma. Their expectations weren't based on Scripture. They were based on their fleshly interpretation of Scripture and their own desires. Here's the bottom line. Jesus was too small. He was too small in every sense of the word. Isaiah 53 told him this would happen, right? Isaiah 53 is one of the, the clearest messianic prof, uh, prophecies about Jesus and the Messiah. And one of the things it says is that the Messiah, he had no form or majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we would desire him. Jesus wasn't attractive in any way. Though he was a carpenter, I am convinced he made crooked tables. Okay? Why? Because he would be attractive. Dude, you got a Jesus table? Like, that's awesome, right? I don't think he did. I think he made some average tables, average chairs. There was no beauty about him, nothing. He was small in every way, so much so he could live for 30 years in relative obscurity and no one knew who he was, really. Catch this, his disciples were even more unattractive. Like they were, by all accounts, small in the world. Right? They were largely from this area of Galilee, which is like just the armpit of Israel, right? It's just bad, not as bad as Nazareth, Nazareth, but it's bad. A sea town, most of them. But God used this motley crew of nobodies by His power to make into somebody's. It's almost as if, and this is, you guys remember probably when you're younger, you'd be on the, picking the teams with a, you know, different, I always wanted to be captain because you didn't want to be, oh, I'll be captain, I'll be captain, right? And you just hoped you were good enough to be captain so you didn't have to go through the, you know, public humiliation that was being picked or not. But it's almost as if God, as when He's picking His team, He picks all the people that God that, that the world skips over. I mean, he likes the slow kid. He likes the unathletic kid. He likes the one-legged kid. He likes the small kid. Some of God's greatest draft picks, right? If you read the Bible, it's fascinating. What you'd find is that some of his draft picks were fugitives, boat builders, Shepherds, religious zealots, teenage moms, politicians, prostitutes, adulterers, invalids, criminals, murderers, fishermen, and even ancient IRS agents. That's his team, right? I'll take the prostitute. I'll take the murderer over there who likes to arrest Christians and throw them in jail. Like, really? Oh, okay. See, God accomplishes his mission through the small, through the weak through the weird, through the wayward. 
And this is no more true than the book of Judges. Now, I don't like a lot of my old sermons, okay? So forgive me if you listen to them. I don't listen to them, but there's one sermon I enjoy. One. It was out of Judges, which is a crazy book. But the idea of God working through the small is no more evident than the book of Judges. Judges 3, verse 31. I preached a whole sermon on it about a guy named Shamgar of which if I ever have a dog or another child, not that they're equal, but those sort of possibilities, probably not the child, so maybe a dog. Shamgar is going to be the name of this dog. Judges 3.31, he gets one verse. One verse in the Bible. After him, he's one of the judges in Israel. I won't go into what all that is. You can go listen to it. Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. You know what an ox goad is? It's pretty much a cattle prod that's like a stick with a spear on the end, right? 600 Philistines. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He's a farmer. So this unknown farmer, you don't know anything before him or after, he just Shamgar killed 600 Philistines and saved a nation. An unknown farmer used who he was and what he had to save a nation. And I'm sure he was like, you know, Chuck Norris, Conan Barbarian, you know, guy of the century with an ox goad, but the reality is he was just one guy, a small guy, nothing. And look what God did with him. See, our world, and I would say even our, our evangelical Christian world, doesn't celebrate the insignificant and the ordinarily faithful. We love to elevate the extraordinarily fruitful. And it's really easy to do in our technologically rich world today. We hear much about conferences and their speakers, movements and their leaders, best-selling authors and their books, megachurches and their preachers, but we don't often hear about the electricians building beds for orphans in Haiti. And we don't often hear about the tree toppers serving breakfast at shelters. And we don't write books about the PUD linemen who counsel people or high school teachers who plant churches or families who adopt unwanted children. It's not likely we'll learn the names of the mom of three leading ministries or the shopkeeper who can be killed for hosting a secret church in the basement of a store. You won't hear that stuff. It's too small. But all these stories are ordinary people using who and what they are to do extraordinary work for the Lord. And they didn't try to do extraordinary work. They just did ordinary work and God made it extraordinary. Kind of like a mustard seed. If you look at it and go, man, that thing's teeny. What's it going to do? Boom! Biggest plant in the garden. Much like Shamgar and Moses and Peter and Paul and Matthew, these are people who stopped asking questions like, who am I? And started listening to God say, this isn't about who you are. This is about who I am and what I can do through small things. They begin to see themselves, and this is what I think the kingdom does in us, and this is what I believe Jesus is teaching, gives us what I'll just call kingdom eyes. 
changes our view of what seems small or insignificant in ourselves and in others. And it causes us to look past what I think are superficial appearances or experiences or even historical precedents of what's happened. And you see the smallest single seed of kingdom faithfulness results in a huge tree that blesses many. This is not, this is not a call to go, you know what, you need to go out and have big impact. You need to do something big for the Lord. It's actually a call to say, the small things that you're faithful in have big impact for the Lord. See, ordinary faithfulness is actually biblical Christianity. It doesn't mean you won't do some radical things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be challenged to. But that shouldn't overshadow some of the small things that we do that have huge impact. I think ordinary faithfulness as a man and woman matters. I think faithfulness as a husband matters infinitely more than faithfulness as planting a church does. Faithfulness as a wife matters. Faithfulness as a mom and dad matters. To believe that the consistency of shepherding those children, of having those conversations, of disciplining, of encouraging, of loving, that I'm going to... like. Christianity bugs me so much, at least the popular version, where they're like, sow a seed, sow a seed, right? Money, money, money. How about just sowing a seed of faithfulness, taking care of your kid day after day out, day in, day out, day in, believing that there's going to be fruit. Believing that something's going to happen. Faithfulness as a neighbor matters. Faithfulness as an employee matters. In God's kingdom, one person one small person, one small family, heck, one small church can have big impact. Now, if you start with a mentality like, I'm going to have big impact, I, I think you'll fall flat on your face. But if you just say, I'm going to have impact here in this area, I'm going to be faithful here, who knows what God will do? We're called to be faithful, not fruitful. Period. Let God take care of the fruit. And trust that that little seed He's given you actually has power to produce it. So we get a new perspective, right? Then he gives us another parable. Keeps going. Oh, the kingdom of God's like this. The kingdom of God's like this. Because not only is our citizenship, citizenship and kingdom of heaven, I think, change a view of ourselves and others, it actually changes our disposition towards others. Here's what it says. He told them another parable, really short. The kingdom of heaven like is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. So, leaven is yeast, right? Yeast is basically um, fungus, but it reacts with the properties of dough and it causes it to expand. So, if you've ever made bread, right? You put some yeast in it. If you don't have a bread machine like we do, we just put stuff in there and press a button. But back in the day, or people who do it the right way, they make this dough and they put yeast in it and they let it sit and it expands. It becomes a big loaf. And... Without the yeast, the dough will just sit there as a blob and it'll be pretty nasty bread if you ate it. But with the yeast, right, it gets big and it affects every part of the dough. It, it expands into every aspect of it. How that happens is a mystery. But it happens. And we can see the effects of it happening. We don't understand what's in there, but we see the effects on the outside of it happening. Just as when the kingdom of God comes into someone's life, you don't necessarily know how this is happening, but you see the effects of it. 
It's observable from the outside. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that leaven. It comes into rule, I believe, every part of our lives. And inexplicably, it starts to change us from the inside out. And we see the effects on what? On our language. Well, you don't swear anymore? No. You use your language to build up, not to break down. Whether that's swearing or not, I could care less. But you're using your tongue for what it's designed for. You start to see that happening. You start to see the effects on on how we spend our money. You see the effects on how we parent on even how we recreate and how we relate to people, on sexuality, on everything, slowly that kingdom begins to affect all aspects to it as you rise. This isn't necessarily even a result of effort. It just happens. It's a natural response, I believe, to the kingdom that has been planted and is rising in our hearts. And we grow as as God's purposes and God's designs begin to take over every part of our life. And it's a process. It's not overnight. Certainly people have those experiences where they just change from one to the next. But it is a process. It's a trajectory. You see it growing. Like You don't put yeast in bread. It's like, like that, right? You put it in there and then slowly check on it. And slowly. Sometimes you get really impatient. You throw it in the oven. Oh, it's rised enough, right? And just... Tastes nasty, right? Like eating thick biscuits. Like that didn't work out. But if you let it sit there, and it grows and it expands. See, Snohomish Christianity, right? We'll just use that as a negative. That Northwest version of Christianity divides our lives into spiritual and not spiritual. The kingdom of God comes in and basically makes everything spiritual. Everything's a spiritual issue. Parenting's a spiritual issue. Money's a spiritual issue. Working for your employee is a spiritual issue. Like it has something to do with your relationship with God. The effects of the kingdom, though, as you see, this is an, I think it's the coolest parable. It's not just for us, right? It's not just, okay, I'm going to be able to eat bread. It's not just so we can have our own little feast on the Lord. In this parable, the yeast is sown into what is called three measures. And that's actually like a bushel of flour, which is, according to what I looked up, like 144 cups of flour. So if you kind of start doing the math, which I'll help you because I don't do math, is that the average recipe for bread takes about four to five cups of flour. So what you're talking about well, the amount of bread that Jesus is saying this woman's making is like 50 loaves or more. So, that's a lot of bread for one woman. It's a lot of sandwiches. And that's the point. See, entering the kingdom is actually really about God restoring everything that was broken in the garden. And what was broken first was obviously the relationship with God. What that spread out is to relationship with one another. And so, when God and the kingdom comes in and restores that relationship, you are now a son and daughter of the king. Guess what you begin to do? You restore relationships with everyone else. And you begin to look at people differently. You begin to 
act toward others differently. And I'm not talking just your friends. I love what Paul writes in Philippians 2. A very well-known passage describing Christ's attitude. So we're talking about the kingdom of God coming to reign in our hearts. Christ coming to reign in our hearts, affecting our minds. Paul talks about this. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Okay, Not just, hey, you should go find this mind. That have this mind, which is yours. It's in there. If you are a Christian, if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you are a Christian. The kingdom is ruling in your heart. It's there. And it says, have this mind among yourselves. Be who you are. It's yours in Christ. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Be born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the kingdom of heaven in us, we're talking about what is it producing in us? It's like a woman who desires more than just to feed her family. The kingdom announced by Jesus is like a woman who wants to feed her family. She also wants to feed the city. Heck, she wants to feed the world. Like, when you become a Christian and your eyes are open to what is going on in this world, the great commission of to go and make disciples suddenly makes sense. I have people to feed. Others are hungry. I have a responsibility because I now know to do something. And so the bottom line is this. If your Christianity... Well, it's Snohomish Christianity. If your Snohomish Christianity is basically finding its end and beginning in you and just in your family, and your Christianity in every sense of the word is it not feeding anybody else, it's not biblical Christianity. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's worth a conversation. And to begin to ask yourself some questions of who am I feeding? Well, I'm feeding my kids. And you should. And then who? Fifty loaves is a heck of a lot of bread. And they don't got freezers back then. So it's going out to somebody. That's the heart of a kingdom Christian. It gets better or worse, depending who you are, right? Changes our view, changes our purpose, and then it changes even our emotions. Right? I don't like this. That's okay. God can change that. It says, the kingdom of heaven, again, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Right? So you got this guy. He's not looking for any treasure. It's almost as if the treasure finds him. Trips over it. What is this? Oh my goodness. Right? And what is found? We're not told what it is. Fills him with joy. Exceeding joy. <laughs> now, right, for you, right, for me, I want to go, what is the treasure? Because that's how we evaluate our joy or measure our joy. It's like my son, uh, Landon, the youngest, not the youngest anymore. Well, yeah, he's not the youngest, right? He's the middle, whatever. He, uh, he was so typical, like, so we'd have dessert, right? Typical for a parent. Eat your dinner, you can have dessert, blah, 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 right? So, 
he would, I think it was him, correct me if I'm wrong, Caleb, but he, every time, we go, hey, you can't have dessert for your dinner, and he'd go, what's, what dessert? Uh, it's, what's dessert? We go, well, it's ice cream. Nah, I don't want it. And he would eat his dinner, right? He's like, that's not, that's not enough for me to get happy about. I'm not going to sacrifice for that, right? So we do that. Like, well, what's the treasure? We're told what the treasure is here. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is what makes this man joyful. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, the ways of God, the commands of God, the promises of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes men rejoice. The Bible talks a lot about happiness, but it even talks more about joy. In a quick study, depending on the translation you use, Happiness appears about 30 times, and joy appears about 300 times. Joy and happiness are different, and I'm sure you could find different definitions, but I'll put it this way. In summary, the Bible teaches that happiness is relatively fleeting because it depends typically on things outside of ourselves, circumstances that are temporary and that change. Joy, on the other hand, is everlasting because it is based, founded, rooted upon in an internal, unchanging position with God in Christ in every circumstance. In writing to Christians who are being persecuted, the Apostle Peter wrote this, though you have not seen Him, right? It's invisible. You love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you're dying, though you're being hunted, though you're being killed, though you are suffering, you are filled with joy inexpressible. The kingdom of God is something to get excited about. It's a matter of joy. And I'm not talking about zippity doo dah Christianity. Right? Oh, I love Jesus. Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about that. Where you kind of like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not happy like that. Neither am I. I'm joyful. There's a governing sense of joy that I am known by God by name. He knows every hair on my head while it's still there. I am known by Him. I am loved by Him like a son. I am protected by Him. I am provided by Him so I don't have to fear. I am a son or daughter of the King. I mean, does for those who are Christians, does your irrevocable, immeasurable, incomparable citizenship in the family of God make you joyful? When you are scared, when things... Like, seriously, when I look at numbers on the back of the bulletin, I kind of go, oh gosh, and fear and anxiety comes in me. Because guess why? I've forgotten. I'm not putting my faith in you. Right? The Lord has us. The King has us. I don't fear. On the contrary, I have joy. And how do you know when someone has joy, right? Is it, is it that zippity doodah like just Christian optimism type of thing? I don't think so. What I think is what this guy is, right? We live and we see the joy lived out, I think, by investing in the invisible. 
That's how you know when someone's really joyful, really certain. See, imagine when the man returns to town. What does he tell him, right? He's going to sell everything he has. They're like, what are you doing? Buying this field over there. What's the field look like to them? Worthless. Worthless. Everything's invisible to them. They don't know about the treasure. He didn't tell them. See, the joy of the Christian does not come from visible, earthly, temporary things. It comes from things that are invisible. It comes from what amounts to a future reward, the promises of the coming kingdom. And those promises compel us to invest in invisible things, to invest our time and our talent and our treasure in stuff that may not produce fruit, but we know that the Lord sees and we know that the Lord rewards. What happens is you end up sacrificing what really is the unrealistic American kingdom, we'll call it, American dream, in order to live for what you are convinced is the realistic reality of God's kingdom. That's a different way of living. And when you do it, when you invest in invisible things, when you serve without expecting to be served, when you give not expecting to have some kind of benefit that you can measure, when you begin to do those kinds of things, people mock you. They revile you. They condemn you because they can't see it. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever spend your own money to go to Honduras and build for a woman you've never met? <laughs> you see the new motorcycle I got? Right? Why would you ever do that? That doesn't make sense to me. So imagine what these people are thinking when he sells everything for a worthless field. Here's the truth. He knows something that they don't. And as a Christian, a biblical, kingdom-ruled Christian, you know something that the non-believer or the non-Christian doesn't know. The question is, do you live as if that's true? Most of our life is spent avoiding suffering. Paul writes it this way, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, right? You live long enough, guess what? Your job's gone, your family's gone, your health's gone, your money's gone. You live long enough, you'll see all those things gone. We don't live for things that are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. Or what did Jesus say in the earlier Matthew in His sermon, right? Blessed are those when you when others revile you, you find that dumb field and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Gives us a new joy. The last parable is probably the most convicting. Sorry. It reveals, I think, the true nature of our Christianity and it challenged uh, me my whole value system, but it says, last one, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, it seems similar, the last two parables seem similar, and, and it's important to recognize there's a little bit of a difference. First, unlike the hidden treasure that we read earlier, the man, this man's looking for pearls. 
And pearls um, are an interesting jewel if you know anything about pearls. Um, basically, certain oysters produce uh, pearls inside their shells, but the pearl begins as an irritant, a piece of sand, dirt, scroots in there. And because it irritates the oyster in order to protect itself, it starts to form these layers around it, which you know, it's pretty much the same stuff the shell itself is made of. And after adding layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, over time it becomes a beautiful pearl. Kind of makes you remember the parable of the weeds a little bit, in which something we can't get rid of in our life, right? The weed that's there, that's irritant. Instead of just ignoring it, maybe you face it and see what happens. Maybe it becomes wheat, who knows. But as a merchant, okay, we, we assume that this guy is searching for a pearl in order to sell to make a living. Makes sense? And you sell stuff so you can obtain power and security. I'm not saying those are horrible things. I'm just saying that's why you sell stuff. So that's first. Right? He's looking for this pearl. Second, it's clear that there's more than one pearl. right? There's pearls that are of great value and there's other pearls that I guess are not. And third, they're searching for, um, in searching for the one pearl, he finds this must be the most valuable pearl he's ever come upon. And instead of getting it and using it to sell, he sells everything to get it, which seems a little backwards because we assume he's getting the pearl to get rich and the opposite happens. So up to this point in these three parables that we read, now the fourth, the first three always identified the kingdom of God with an inanimate object, right? The first one was a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The second is the kingdom of God is like a piece of leaven. The third was the kingdom of God. It wasn't like the guy. It was like the hidden treasure. But this one's different. So the kingdom of God is like the merchant, not the pearl. So I think there's two ways to take this parable. I think you probably need to use both of them in order to understand it all, and then it brings us to conclusion. The first way to understand the parable is to view ourselves as the merchant who in you know, discovering the kingdom of God, which again is a little bit of a stretch because they said the kingdom of God was like the merchant who finds, but I guess you could say that. But one way to take it, and commentators have, is say that the merchant who finds the kingdom of God recognizes it as the greatest of all value of any other kingdom thing you could find. So this is the individual who... And I believe this is valid, who finds Jesus and finds Jesus supremely glorious and their entire life becomes centered on Jesus. Everything about Jesus governs them. The truth is, when you find the kingdom of God or when Jesus finds you, however you want to say it, if the kingdom of God, if the things of Christ do not become the center of your life, it may not be biblical Christianity. Jesus isn't a backpack you just put on every now and then. And when you find with your mind and your heart, right, okay, Jesus is supremely, if that doesn't work itself out to your actual life, into affecting what you do, your action, again, it's not biblical Christianity. I'm not sure. Maybe you found another Jesus. 
if the outworking of your Christianity climaxes purely in sentiment without action, it's not biblical. Remember Paul who wrote in Philippians 3, indeed, he lost a lot. He had wealth. He had power. He had authority. He had popularity. He lost it all for the sake of Christ. Went from murderer to martyr. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. So why don't you fill in the blank in your mind. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of And if you cannot put anything in that blank, you should be concerned. And if you can put things in that blank, and you see that as loss, and not just, that's garbage, I don't care. Compared to Christ, you should be concerned. Because when you experience the kingdom of God for what it is, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, and you see the expense He went to to save you, and the dirt He cleaned up to love you, You can't help but lose everything. Which leads us to the second point, right? How do we ever get to the point where I'm willing to lose everything? Like, that sounds really good, but I, how do you get to that place? I can't just white-knuckle it, can I? Where I'm willing to lose everything, willing to lose my comfort and my lifestyle and my plans for how I thought my life was going to end up and my, even my job and my reputation... Am I, am I really? How do I get to the place where I'm willing to lose my position or I'm willing to lose my relationship for the sake of Christ? Well, if you view the parable the second way, you don't see the merchant as yourself. You see the merchant as Christ. And you see you or the church as the pearl. In other words, you see Jesus pursuing and searching for you. You see Jesus finding you. And let's be honest, you weren't much of a beautiful pearl. Might have been still in that irritant stage. But he found you beautiful. And he found you of great value. In fact, he found you of such infinite value that he paid the ultimate sacrifice to purchase you. See, my citizenship in God's kingdom came at infinite cost to Himself. We can't measure the cost. The Son of God shed His blood to purchase your salvation. He gave up His throne. He sacrificed His comfort. He emptied Himself of power He forfeited His reputation. And He spent every drop of His life for a piece of dirt, which we are, that He said, oh no, I consider you a pearl of great value. See, until you see Jesus' death as the giving up of His everything for you, you will always resist giving up anything for Him. But when you see, when you truly see that I really am 
that wicked, dirty, irritating sinner who is saved by pure grace at God's infinite cost, then there is absolutely nothing He cannot ask of you. And nothing you will not freely and joyfully say, take it. It's yours. By grace, I think through faith, this kingdom that I just described, this biblical Christianity, this kingdom comes to reign in our hearts. And sometimes we forget and we fall out of who we are. But I think over time, it begins to rule in our hearts more than not. And its presence in our life gives us a new perspective of ourselves and others of like, I'm not small, neither are you. It gives us a new love for people. It gives us a new joy and even a new will to want to sacrifice. That's biblical Christianity. The last thing Jesus says to His disciples, He says, have you understood these things? And they go, oh yeah, yeah, we have. We got it. Of course, they all abandoned Him the day He was crucified, right? But right now, we believe Jesus. We get it. And He's like, okay. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. So I tell you this, and I've said it before. Jesus' parables aren't difficult to understand. They're very difficult to believe and to live out. If you have understood things today, then you have no excuse not to act. Sorry. You cannot act without understanding, but you don't truly understand if you're not willing to act. You are a disciple if you've understood these things who has been educated. You are a master of a house. You have a domain that you have influence in. And you have been entrusted to do something with it. And as a biblical Christian, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, with a kingdom ruling in your heart, citizenship assured and irrevocable, you are equipped to bring out treasures of the kingdom to others. And so, combat the lie. Right? Combat the lie with truth. Combat the lie that God only works through the big and the fast and the strong with the reality of Jesus' incarnation. He was a carpenter. 30 years, a nobody, nothing. That His disciples were who they were. Combat the lie that the mission of God ends with just your salvation. Okay, I'm saved. Woo! Let's worry about my kids. Woo, they're saved. Recognize that Jesus died for many. Combat the lie that the immediate gratification in life is better than eternal reward with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I agree. This is all there is. Let's get ours now. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven, if Jesus is preparing a place for us, then we best be sure we're investing in visible things because all this is going to burn up. And lastly, combat the lie that it's better to receive than to give. Reminding ourselves of what Jesus came to do and what by His Spirit He sent us to do. Because, as Paul says, though He was rich, yet for our sake 
He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Be a biblical Christian. Or don't be a Christian at all. Because there's a huge difference. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are glorious. You are the one who saves people. Through the death and resurrection of Your Son, by Your Spirit, Lord, You cause the blind to see. You implant the seed of Your kingdom in our hearts and You explode it, changing how we see, changing how we feel, even changing how we act. And Lord, we ask that You'll do that. There are many of us, Father, who have claimed to be Christians for many years. And we have never gotten past apathetic identification as a brand. And Lord, You have made us for so much more. You have saved us for so much more. So I pray by the power of Your Spirit, You will remind those of us here, Lord, who call upon the name of Jesus of the joy of our salvation. And that that joy will compel us as we see everything that Christ gave for us. We will be willing and joyfully so to give to others. Remind us, Father, of who we are Dirty, broken, irritating people who you saw as pearls and of great value. And let us see others the same way. And let us, with great joy, confidence of being sons and daughters of the King, sing as we worship all that you have done to save us from ourselves and from the brokenness of this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion now. I'm going to kind of walk down here. And normally I won't, but I thought for this first time I would do it just so, uh, well, I screwed it up and no one else did. Communion is, again, I've said the, the zenith, if you will, the climax of why we're here. We preach the gospel. We sing about Jesus and to Jesus in song. There's the first point. We hopefully preach the gospel as we proclaim God's Word. And then this is the place where we tangibly participate. This is the place where we really take a moment to look at our lives, to examine our hearts, not anyone else's, and remind ourselves of our brokenness, of our failures, and Christ's perfection and His victory. And then we remind ourselves that Jesus died knowing all of our brokenness. And so if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. If you are a Christian in sin right now, this is not for you. You need to get your heart right. Now, granted, you can get your heart right right now. You can have a conversation with the Lord. For those of you in this church who are out of fellowship with somebody in this church, you need to make that right. But for those of you who are not Christians, I would compel you, don't be embarrassed or, or feel like you're left out because you are not participating. Here's what I compel you to do. You can participate. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead and you are saved, adopted into His king, kingdom. The instructions are very simple. As you bring communion, we're going to come down the sides and you will take communion and you'll please go back through the center. On the night Jesus was betrayed, here's what He did. He took bread 
And with His disciples, He said, this is My body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And He also took the cup. He said, this is My blood, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of Me. So as you take the cup and take the bread, we celebrate and remember Jesus Christ and all that He's did until He returns. So as you see this bread, fill in the blank with your name, but Restoration Road Church, this is Christ's body broken for you. And this is Christ's blood shed for you. Come to the table, lay your sin down that He already knows is there, and receive the forgiveness, the free forgiveness in life with Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the grace of communion. We thank You for a time to come together, Lord, and, but individually even to have a conversation with You to ask ourselves whether we are truly living out everything that You have planted in our hearts. Help us to be who we are. Help us to confess, Father, without fear of rejection. Help us to obey with joy knowing that we are fully approved. Thank You, Jesus. In the name of His Son we pray. Amen.